the one thing you have stepping into a new firm that your partners don't necessarily have is you have time to spend meeting people and figuring out ways to help the portfolio and help the firm. When I came on board, it was about figuring out how to build relationships that I thought could be long-term and meaningful. 99.9% of meetings that all of the soft tech partners take come through very warm introductions. We're all pretty direct, and we're a little bit of what you see is what you get. A really, really big important thing, I think, for us as early stage investors to be thinking about and encouraging our teams to do is to be thinking about building diverse teams early. The more that we can help our companies bring in great diverse candidates, I think in the long term, it starts to pay off in a lot of other ways. Welcome back to Venture Confidential. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. In today's episode, I interview Stephanie Palmieri, a partner at SoftTech. We talk about her early career in venture, what she's learned as a coach and someone who is coached, and we talk about building diverse teams. If you've got questions about Heavybit or are interested in being a guest on this podcast, email me at vc at heavybit.com. Stephanie, welcome to Venture Confidential. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. Let's start with you. How did you get into venture? So I spent the first decade of my career living and working in New York City. And at the very end of that, I was in business school at Columbia. And during the time I was at Columbia, the New York startup scene was really starting to take off. It was uh, 2009, 2010. Not a great time to go into banking. Excellent time in New York to go into startups. Mm -hmm. So I spent my two years at Columbia really working with the evolving New York ecosystem thinking, and the reason I went to Columbia was thinking I was going to spend the rest of my life in New York. And instead, I finished up that time and realized, A, I had a big interest in, in working in venture. But B, it's like, if I'm going to do this venture thing, I think I need to be in California. And at least for a couple of years and build relationships out here. Mm-hmm. And so I threw my stuff in storage. I got rid of my apartment. And I moved out here with two suitcases And I just started networking. And I had a pretty limited network in California, my lifelong East Coaster. And I was sleeping on a friend's floor. And through some folks in my network, I got connected to one of SoftTech's LPs. And for your audience, in case they don't know what an LP is, an LP is a limited partner. So they're the investors in a venture fund. And so Hans at Industry Ventures, it's like, here's a couple people that I've just given money to. This one's hiring, this one needs to hire, this one probably isn't hiring. Reach out to them, tell them I sent you. And Jeff Clavier from SoftTech was one of those people that I reached out to. Jeff was not hiring, but kind of maybe needed someone. And uh, so I sent him a note, and he's like, oh, gave me some great advice about why I should do venture later in my career. Hmm. And uh, and then published that advice to his like broad audience, took out my name, but people I knew realized it was me. And so I kind of ignored that he did this. And, and, I, and I was like, he had really great advice. And I want to talk to him about like doing venture at some point and maybe working at a startup out here. Yeah, wait, what did he say? Why defer venture? I think he thought I was younger than I was and didn't have any operating experience. He, he kind of read the, the three lines of like, hey, I just graduated and mm. thought I was undergrad or you know, something like that. My goal was to get a meeting. I wrote a couple very effective lines and effectively got a meeting. And uh, so I wrote back to him and I was like, hey, you know, I, I'm interested in this venture thing. I'm also very interested in operating roles at startups. So you know, if you have time, I'm living out here now. And that meant sleeping on a friend's floor. And so I, I, he ended up having me come in and I sat down with him. And he says to me, so I'm supposed to convince you to not work in venture. And I looked at him and I was like, well, yeah, uh, but I just got here. 
and I'm pretty stubborn, so I'm going to try for a couple months at least, but why don't we talk about startups? So we talked for 30 minutes, great conversation. A couple days later, he says, come in and meet my partner Charles, who was Charles Hudson, who was the other partner at SoftTech at the time. Great conversation with Charles about startups. Jeff wants to chat with you. Go to Jeff's office, and Jeff goes, well, you're not going to take my advice, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to work for me for the next eight weeks, prove we need someone, and you're the right person, and maybe that'll hire you. Can you start today? Huh. So that's how I started at SoftTech. And so about four weeks in, he made me a full-time offer. And I've been at SoftTech now for, it's, I think it's actually six years this week. Congratulations. Thank you. What were those first four weeks like? <laughs> they, were, they were a little insane. So the first four weeks were, really, the fund was going through a transition of Jeff on his own to having a small team. And Charles was a venture partner at the time, so he was also running a company. And you know, we had Ashley Cravens, who's now our head of operations, who was, you know, helping Jeff administratively. But there was a lot of just stuff that needed to get done in terms of putting processes in place um, from a deal flow management standpoint. There were a ton of deal. Jeff has amazing deal flow, and at the time, the expectation wasn't necessarily on me to bring in new deals. It was, hey, we don't want deals to fall through the cracks. Mm. So we've got all this stuff coming in, filter through what makes sense, take meetings with things that make sense that maybe I don't have the time to meet with. And so if I think about it at the time, it was I used the time to try to very quickly get up to speed on what the soft tech portfolio was, which at the time was probably 65 or 70 deals that Jeff had done on his own. So, you know, you're you're looking through, you're trying to figure out like, oh, what are the ones that are interesting? You know, what are the ones that maybe I'm gonna help support for the next couple of months? What are the newest companies that have come on board? Just so I would at least know what the portfolio was. But then also a lot of this internal kind of systems and process. And then over time I started, you know, gradually building out my network and bringing more and more deals to the table as well. But yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of just like helping a firm get off the ground and running. Sure. So what was the Soft tech portfolio. Where does soft tech play? A little bit of everything. We're a generalist fund. We're a seed stage fund. So soft tech focuses on early stage opportunities. Today we're generally, I would say, the largest or the second largest check in a series seed deal. We're typically working with companies that are raising anywhere from one and a half to maybe three million dollars. So they may have raised a couple hundred thousand dollars before getting to us, what we would call like a pre-seed these days. Mm-hmm. And then we're coming in either as a lead or co-lead or another, you know, a large check in the round. And the types of companies, you know, it's a combination of what I would consider to be consumer services, so monetizable consumer, uh, marketplaces, which could be consumer or B2B, a lot of SaaS and enterprise. And then we do a lot of hardware. So we have this part of the fund, roughly 20% of what we invest in per fund is what we call new areas. And we've had this for a long time. It's a really good way to enable us to experiment with things that could become their own categories. Mm. So in 2011, when I invested in Class Dojo, Class Dojo was a new areas company because it was an education technology company, and we had never done anything in ed tech before. In 2008, when Jeff invested in Fitbit, Fitbit was a new areas company. We had never done any hardware before. Well, now if you you know fast forward 2017. We have a number of ed tech companies, and some of them are consumer, some of them are you know, SaaS. So education is an industry that we look at. Hardware is now its own category, and I'd say roughly 15 to 20% of our latest fund is hardware investments. So 
a lot of times it's a way for us to explore what we think are going to be either frontier technologies or even you know frontier industries that we haven't gotten familiar with. It's a chance for us to get to know uh, space through doing a deal and to test out a thesis. And sometimes that thesis really works out. What led to that initial investment in Class Dojo? Well, some of it was proximity, which is kind of cool. At the time, uh, Softech's office was in Palo Alto on Page Mill Road, and right down the hall from us was this thing called Imagine K-12, which was run by Jeff Ralston and Tim Brady, and it was the kind of Y Combinator offshoot for education technology startups. And Class Dojo was one of the, I'm guessing, six or ten companies in the very first batch. And so they were close. They were right down the hall. That's not why we did the investment, but we got a chance to meet the company really early on and get a first look at some of the companies in that batch. And one thing that stood out to us about that team was even though the founders were young, they actually had some really unique experiences within education and they had a really teacher-centric approach to what they were building. And so Sam had spent some time teaching. Liam had also taught in a different capacity. Sam had worked at McKinsey in the education space. And so they were bringing these interesting insights, spent a lot of time with teachers in the classroom, and were really focused on bringing some level of utility to teachers that could make their lives better. And I mean, the company has massively evolved from, from that early point. But you know, we got a chance to meet them that very first year when they launched probably a month into them launching. Cool. Yeah. I get the impression that you're now one of the education experts at SoftTech. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, of the three of us in the team, for sure. But no, I mean, I am, while I'm not exclusively focused on doing ed tech deals, for a non-ed tech-focused fund, we do a lot of education technology, and, I've, and I would say we have a really solid portfolio in the ed tech world. Probably the three relevant names to mention, the Class Dojo, Clever, if you know Clever, and uh, Panorama Education in Boston is another great one. And you don't come from education yourself. So what are some things you've learned along the way? What makes for a successful education company? I think you have to know who your user is and the channel you want to go in. You know, with Class Dojo, I think one of the things that, that Sam and Liam have done really well is understanding how to leverage providing really simple core value to teachers in the classroom to spread through word of mouth, they spent zero on, on marketing, to students and then to parents. And they understand that interesting dynamic and relationship around a child and how there's different constituents, the parent and the teacher, and they've been able to really evolve their offering and their product from taking it just something used within the classroom to something being used between the classroom and the home and to now something being used at the home itself. So I think you know here it's a consumer product with an entry point through schools. Uh, something like Clever, Clever really understood where to attack the value chain within education apps in general coming into schools and how to capture value there. So taking a step back, one thesis that I bought into with Clever is that you're going to have more and more technology being utilized in classrooms. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single education tech app is going to be a billion dollar company. There may be tons of great products to learn math for third graders out there. What they need is distribution. Mm. 
And one thing that Clever does is they help provide easy distribution and utilization in the classroom. Sorry, let's take one more step back. Yeah. What is Clever? So Clever is, think of it as a way to pull information from these really clunky student information systems Mm -hmm. that schools have, and there's tons of them out there, and make it very easy for teachers and students to do single sign-on in the classroom, but also kind of be that kind of control dashboard for using apps in, in the classroom. Cool. And so they provide really great utility throughout the education tech ecosystem, both to the schools, in the classroom, to the administration, as well as to the actual ed tech companies. So it's really understanding where you're capturing value within that chain. Awesome. Yeah. I want to come back to the Stephanie Palmieri story. Okay. So you graduate from Columbia, you move to San Francisco, you're crashing on a couch, networking furiously, you get this eight-week stint at SoftTech, you get hired, and over the next six years, you get promoted a couple of times, and now you're a partner. Tell me a little bit about that journey. I mean, it's been pretty crazy. In fact, I mean, I'm shocked sitting here telling you it's been six years, I think, this week. When I think about it, it, the times in some ways has flown by. You know, when I came on board, it was about figuring out how to build relationships that I thought could be long term and meaningful, but by providing help and value. And I think, you know, I give this advice when I meet new associates in venture, which is the one thing you have stepping into a new firm that your partners don't necessarily have is you have time. Mm. You don't have a load of boards. You don't have a legacy portfolio that you're sitting on. You actually have a lot of capacity to spend meeting people and to spend figuring out ways to, to help the portfolio and help the firm. And so, you know, if I think about the first couple of years at SoftTech, as I was building up my own portfolio, starting to take my own board seats. I was able to provide leverage to the firm, specifically to Jeff. So I got to you know, take over some deals. But in addition to that, I got to build relationships with some of SoftTech's founders because I was able to kind of go to the office and spend time playing around with products and give a lot of feedback. And I still do that today, but I didn't have the same amount of time. Mm. And so that was really, I think, a big, a big thing that I, you know, I think for for a lot of new associates, some sometimes it's focusing on how do you build your. Sure, you need to build your your deal flow and top of funnel and and build a brand for yourself. But one thing that I found is my best advocates are the founders that I've worked with, and so making sure I've built really strong relationships with those founders, they can specifically speak to things that I've helped them do. That's really valuable as you're growing your brand, not just within a firm but within the ecosystem. What are some of the ways that you provided help as a as an associate? Well, so we were very early investors in Poshmark, which is a huge company today. Are you familiar with Poshmark? Tell me about Poshmark. Okay, you're probably not a Poshmark customer. Poshmark is a peer-to-peer marketplace, mobile first for fashion. It started with women's fashion and now it has kids and men's, but at the time when I got involved with Poshmark, it was pre-launch, and I was one of the first hundred users. So I would go to these posh parties where we'd sit in the Poshmark office in Menlo Park, and the you know five or six of us in the room would be listing items out of our closets. And we had our early users that we knew, and you know, we would be adding items in this hour that the party was going on on the mobile app, and then suddenly like someone you didn't know would buy. 
And it was awesome, right? So I got to be part of experiences like that, you know, where I was able to provide product feedback, where I was able to just, again, spend time that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been able to do if I had the load of boards that a senior partner would have. Sure. How have your relationships with startups changed as you've gotten busier? How do you maintain that sort of intimacy? It, you know, it's still my top priority. Cool. And I and I think that's I think that's really important. You know, when people ask how I split my time, I usually say it's a third, a third, a third. You know, a third of my time is spent on new deals, a third of my time is spent on portfolio companies, and a third of my time is spent on everything else. That's stuff like this, doing podcasts. Uh, I go back to Columbia and I guest lecture a couple courses a year, all that kind of stuff. General networking, conferences. The first thing you cut out is all that stuff, right? You know, you've got some really big meaty things you're tackling with a company, like that stuff gets pushed to the wayside. Certainly you maybe take fewer pitch meetings because you're focused more on the companies, the existing companies that you're working with. So I think my time ebbs and flows in terms of how much I spend on each bucket. But at the end of the day, the bucket that I prioritize is that bucket of portfolio companies because ultimately that's where my investment dollars are. And my responsibility is to be a good steward of the capital for the firm, but also to be, you know, a good resource for those companies. You know, time management is something that comes up really consistently in this room. Lots of VCs struggle with it, are thinking about it all the time have wacky systems for monitoring their own time. Any learnings that you can share for staying sane? Oh, I wish I had a great time management trick, but I'm I frankly think I'm pretty bad at it myself. I'll tell you something that I've been working on lately, which is again, this goes back to, you know, when I when I was starting out, you could take a lot of meetings because you had the time, and now you, I have to be more and more careful with how I spend my time. And so I've actually started, I pull all of my appointments into a spreadsheet and I go through at the end of the week and I rate how valuable that meeting was and if it was a good use of time or not and whether it was a meeting I chose to take or a meeting someone else asked that I take, like, did I have to take the meeting or not? You know, should I have taken the meeting or not? And I try to assign a rank. And, and the thing I'm trying to do in that is to go back and say, am I spending my time in places that were valuable? And you know, it's arbitrary. What is a valuable use of my time? It could be in some cases, it could be a giving giving back, you know, meeting. And it feels good to do that and to help someone who's new in the industry or, you know, you know, a woman who's trying to land an adventure and how do I try to help her? I am attempting to do this in a way to say, hey, spending the time I have as valuable as I can. Cool. Yeah. Have you noticed any traps? <sighs> That's a loaded question. Let's see. Or maybe what has this spreadsheet caused you to change? It's making me pause before just blanketly saying yes to a meeting. And it's made me be a lot more conscientious of when I take time to meet with an entrepreneur versus taking a meeting that I don't think will lead to investment. And you have to be careful because it's really easy to pass on an idea and then down the road say, hey, like, air, bed, and breakfast. What's that, right? Like, so it's important to make sure that you're not passing without good reason, but you can't take every opportunity that hits your plate. And so for me, it's helping me further refine my filter. Like I've gotten pretty good at refining my filter in terms of which pitch meetings to take, but I think it's helping me get to the next level in terms of, hey, should I have really spent 
an hour with that company, or was 30 minutes actually the right amount to take that first meeting? I'm wondering how you do this filtering. So, you know, I should probably explain that the vast majority, 99.9% of meetings that all of the soft tech partners take come through very warm introductions. Sure. So, I don't believe we've ever invested in a company that's come in completely cold. Now, so I, I shouldn't just email SoftTech you saying should definitely not just email SoftTech. It's a really bad way to get the attention of the partners. Now that doesn't mean that we don't meet companies through accelerator programs and things like that, but they're still coming through some sort of trusted network. So you know, we look to the source of the referral. And I, and I this is the thing that I spend a lot of time on with my portfolio companies as they go out to raise capital too, which is figuring out who's the right intro into a firm. So I like to advise companies that are looking for funding, whether they're mine or whether they're companies coming in, and an introduction from someone who's invested in you or someone who's spending time with you in some other capacity, like an advisor, is a lot stronger than someone who met you at a conference once. Right. So, what's the signal to noise ratio? You know, how quality is the introduction and how quality on both sides? How well do they know what I'm looking for and how well do they know the founder? And so, the stronger the signal, the more likely I am to say, "Hey, absolutely, definitely want to meet that company." Otherwise, I probably need to take a few more steps to figure out if it's really worth my time and the founder's time. I think the best sources of referral for us are, first and foremost, our CEOs and founders. I mean, they know what we like. We've invested in them. They have a really good sense of what it's like to work with us. And so if one of my CEOs makes an introduction, well, that's coming in really warm on both sides. One of the deals I did last year was a referral from a CEO that I've worked with for the last five years. So I think that was a really good mutual fit. And you know, in both cases, we both kind of knew what we were getting into starting to work with one another because we had this trusted connection in between. I also get a lot of interesting referrals through founders who we've passed on. Huh. Yeah. I mean, founders no good founders. And sometimes you pass on a deal because, you know, the timing's off, or it could be competitive with something in the portfolio. There's a whole host of factors. But if you treat a founder fairly, and they feel like they had a good experience and they got to know your firm, and they know another founder who could benefit from getting to know the firm, it sort of works out for everybody. So over the years, we've invested in quite a few companies that have come through people we've passed on. Awesome. Yeah. You said your CEOs know what you like, they sort of know the soft tech brand. How would you describe that soft tech sweet spot? I think that if you know myself and if you know my partners, Jeff and Andy, we're all pretty direct, and we're a little bit of what you see is what you get. We don't we don't sugarcoat things. We aren't afraid to have tough conversations. We also step up when we need to step up and, and roll up our sleeves and help out. And so a lot of that brand, I think, is carried through in the relationships we build with our CEOs. If you come to a soft tech founder summit or one of our founder networking events, you'll find there's always really good wine flowing. Mm. And, you know, we have a lot of great conversations over meals and over over good wine. And it's it's very much a kind of family-like atmosphere from that perspective. It's, you know, sometimes your family tells you, gives you some tough love. 
And they're also the ones to pick you up when you skin your knee. And so I think that's a lot about what it's like to be part of the soft tech family and brand. Cool. So soft tech likes to get in on the seed round of a company. Do you re-up? Yes, that's a really important question that I think founders don't always understand how this works. So SoftTech invests, we try to own 7 to 10% when we make our first investment. So that's probably a check in the range of half a million to a million dollars, maybe even a little bit more. And then we reserve roughly 60% of the fund for follow-on investments. And that is with the intent of investing in the Series A and the Series B. It's not a given that we're going to invest in the A or the B, but but majority of the time, if I'd say if a company is successful getting to raise a Series A, well, we're going to want to maintain our ownership, maybe even buy more. And so our entire fund model is predicated off of backing up more and more dollars into companies, and 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 eventually, we know we'll start to dilute over a certain period of time. But but in the A and the B. We're going to be really supportive partners. But I think I should mention, we never lead Series A deals. And that's a really important distinction. And I think you'll find that amongst micro VC firms, which is kind of the class of seed investor we would consider ourselves. We would be competing with the hand that feeds us. We don't want to compete with our friends at Series A. We want our friends at Series A to come in and participate in our deals and lead our deals. And so if I'm leading a Series A, well, what kind of signal does that send to the market about this company or any of my other companies? So we're really, really conscientious to only invest at seed. Say that one more time. Why would leading a Series A send a bad signal to the market? Well, it might mean that I am picking the best companies and I'm putting more money behind the best companies, which means I'm not showing the market my best deals. It also could mean that that company is really struggling and nobody was able to put more money into them. And so we're leading the Series A because the market wouldn't want to put money in. So either way, it's really, really important that we maintain our focus on seed and we enable the next round of funders to come in. The other thing too is we're seed stage investors. We really focus on getting companies from zero to something. And we look to later stage investors to come in and help accelerate their growth. And so it is about knowing where your strengths are and knowing where you help a company best. It doesn't mean we step away from our involvement in the company. I'm still a board observer at Class Dojo, at Poshmark, and a number of companies that have continued to go on to raise multiple successful rounds of funding. But you know, there's a lot of other great people around the table too. How does your relationship with founders change as companies move down the fundraising funnel? You know, you you go from being the lead and the board member to maybe being more of an advisor and a coach and maybe even a friend. And so you're still an investor in the company, but from a cap table standpoint, you know, you're more aligned with the founders as they raise more and more money um, and they take more dilution. And you have a history of knowing what it's like to work with these people. And they have a history of knowing what it's like to work with you. And one of the things I really enjoy the most is being a trusted guide as founders are figuring out what steps they're going to take at the later stage. So, you know, we're somebody who knows what it was like in those early days when you were trying to get people to download your app and get it started, as opposed to coming on board when you were. You know, you know, achieved a certain level of success. Tell me about yourself as a coach. So it's a little bit of tough love. 
It's about being genuine and honest with someone. And it's also about providing really constructive feedback as well. So it's not about right and wrong. There's a lot of different ways to do things. And I think at the end of the day, each founder needs to figure out their own unique approach. My style and approach and how I might pitch a company or how I might manage executives might be different from a founder's. It's not my job to tell them how to do that. But it is my job to help them identify some of their own patterns and trends and to help them work through that. One of the advantages to being a VC, for better or worse, is you start to develop this pattern recognition. I mean, that's something we, we all talk about. A lot of times my founders will ask me, like, what are the, I get this question all the time, like, what are the things that I can avoid as a, a new founder? What's the thing you see all of us make this mistake? And I always laugh because I think one of the things that I see quite often is the first person that you really need to, to fire from your team you will hold on to that person way, way longer. And it doesn't matter who tells you you need to get rid of them. It's not until you get rid of that individual that you will suddenly realize how much you needed to make that change and how much better you feel after that change is done. And that's a really hard thing for me to tell you and for you to understand until you've done it. So I tell them all this. Nine times out of ten, the same that plays out. But at some point in time, the lesson comes back and it's like, oh yeah, you know, that was that was actually something. So as someone who recognizes patterns, you can share these patterns, but a lot of these lessons have to be learned. One thing I also tell my founders is there are certain things that I'm an quote unquote expert in, and there are certain mm-hmm. things you're an expert in. You're an expert in your business. You know your market better than I do, you know your customers better than I do, you know your employees better than I do. And I'm not gonna pretend that I know them better than you. I'm an expert in venture. I see way more deals than you see. I know how deals are put together. I meet way more investors than you meet. At any given time, Softech may have one to 10 companies out raising on the broader market. I look at hundreds of deals a year. And so when I have perspective that comes from deal making and that comes from an investor's perspective, like, that's where I'm the expert. And so as I've evolved in my career and I've become more of an expert in venture, I'm able to talk to a lot more aspects of deal making, a lot more aspects of things like MA. And those are areas where founders get to see that movie once, maybe twice, but VCs see that movie every day. Cool. Do you yourself? Have a coach? I do. I do work with a coach. Oh, cool. Yeah. Can I do you tell work us with about that? It's something that I'm really happy I've started doing relatively recently, but something I had looked into for a while. It's funny in venture, unlike you know, big companies or even small companies, you don't get a lot of feedback. And I understand that because for founders, that there's an interesting power dynamic there. And so it's been really helpful for me to have a sounding board and someone who can give me feedback and help filter feedback from other people in a, in a safe way for other people as well. And so I'm a big advocate of working with coaches, and I encourage the, my founders that want to work with a coach to do that. I think you have to be open to coaching, though. You know, a, a coach is only as good as you allow that coach to be. And so if you want to step into working with a coach, you've got to be receptive to doing the work and putting in the time. And so one thing that was important for me in deciding to work with a coach was actually having real goals for myself as to what I wanted to get out of it and knowing that you know I was going to be working with the coach as long as I was working towards those goals. Cool. Yeah. What are you working on? Oh, that I'm not going to share. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's so refreshing to hear you say that you're getting coached. You know, I think a lot of us have this image of partners as experts, and it's really helpful to realize that everyone in the game is trying to get better. Well, I think the point we were talking about earlier is the role of a VC, especially an early stage VC, and especially as the company evolves from you necessarily being a board member into being more of an advisor is really the role of a coach. And so I think there's a lot of value you get from sitting on the other side of that and seeing what it's like to work with a high-value coach and seeing how you leave those meetings. And you can take that and you can use that, you know, with your companies as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of techniques you can learn that that will, you know, hopefully pay off in terms of working with founders too. Anything that you can share with us in terms of how you approach a coaching conversation? Yeah, so one thing that I'm interested, that I've been interested in testing out, and I'm just starting to do this, is leveraging personality tests. And so when I start working with a new founder as a board member, and this is just a new test for me, so who knows if this is going to work, but I'm using DISC as one of the tests out there. There's there's a bunch of them, there's Myers-Briggs and stuff like that. So I'm very happy to share my DISC results with a founder. And if the founder wants to take DISC and share their DISC results with me, that's great. Um, it's up to the founder if they want to do that, but I'm more than happy to share my results with them so they have a sense of you know, once we're starting to work together, like, okay, here's when Stephanie gets really excited. That makes sense given how she, you know, her her disc profile is. Mm. You know, I'm hoping it helps me and the founders that I work with be better communicators and for me to be a more effective partner. Cool. So before you came in, I did it some research. I read all your medium posts. That's what I'm saying. I read all your medium oh, posts. Oh, nice. Okay. And one of the ones that stood out for me is you wrote this pretty fun post a while back about what startups can expect from a Trump administration or, or how, how oh, to think yeah. about <laughs> this new era. Yeah. Uh, you know, the effect it's having or it might have on, on visas, new regulatory environments. We're now seven months into it. Uh, I'm laughing because you're wincing in a really big way. I'm wondering what's played out in terms of how our new president has affected the startup scene. Well, you know, one thing I talked about was uncertainty around startup visas and entrepreneurship. And I think it's been really interesting to see what's been playing out. And as of yesterday or today, Essentially, Trump says he's probably going to eliminate the rule to allow foreign entrepreneurs to come into the U.S. to start companies. You know, I thought it was fascinating when we had the French president encouraging lots of companies to come start in France. And I think the scary part is we're going to potentially see more and more entrepreneurs realize that they're going to have more opportunities to start companies potentially in other places. And it's really sad for me. You know, I'm an American citizen and I was born here in the United States, but both of my partners are actually foreign born. And a lot of our founders, I don't know the exact number, but I would wager to say it could be close to half of our CEOs and founders were born outside the US. And we've brought a number of companies into the U.S. and helped them become U.S.-based companies. Now, we don't invest outside the U.S., but we've invested in a ton of companies that have come from you know, outside the U.S. Class Dojo is a great example. Sam and Liam were U.K. citizens, and they came to the U.S. to start Class Dojo. And so you know, the, probably the biggest immediate impact and concern for, for me as an early-stage investor is what are the opportunities that are never going to even come our way because we're not able to 
get a fair shot of looking at those founders anymore. And we stand the chance of losing a lot of great entrepreneurs that would really benefit from being part of the Silicon Valley ecosystem to other geographies and specifically other countries when we really start to mess with the visa laws. Yeah. The other news story that keeps landing on my feed is just how inimical venture can be to women. I become increasingly aware of how difficult it is for women to raise money and how shitty that experience often is. What are some things that you and Softec are doing to try to make venture a little friendlier to women? First and foremost, I think having women, and specifically women partners at venture funds, is an incredibly important part of solving this problem. It means that you potentially are attracting more women to come to the fund to raise money. It means that you're looking at things with a diverse set of eyes. And the more women that get funded, the more, the more women GPs, the more women that get funded, the more women that can start companies, the more balanced the room becomes. And so, first and foremost, I look at a big part of me going to work and being at Softic every day is, you know, whether I want to or not, I'm a role model for f- females in the industry, and I and I want to be one. At Softec, we've invested in a lot of female entrepreneurs. I'm proud to say that I'm not the only one who's backing those women. We have a lot of great female founders at Softec that both my partners, Jeff and Andy, have backed as well. We're both in Launch Darkly. Edith, I yeah, love Edith. Edith. Huge Edith fan. Edith is amazing, and my partner Andy led that deal. In fact, it was one of the first deals he did when he came on board at Softec. And so, yeah, it's founders like Edith. It's founders like... Laura at Shippo and Matilde at Front, mm. who are going to forge the way for the next generation of female founders. And I'm really excited that we at Softech get a chance to back those women. I think the second piece and the important thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately is so if you look at the top of the funnel, you need to see female GPs and you need to see you know the more female founders. But in order to get that, you need to see more women in executive leadership roles at startups. And so how does the next big platform company spit out a bunch of great founders who are women? Well, it starts with having a lot of great female executives on the team. And so it's really hard to be the other on a team. Mm. And if you think about a five-person company, coming in and being the first female or the first non-white person on the team might feel a little intimidating. It's a heck of a lot harder if you've gotten to 10 people. It is drastically harder if you've gotten to 20. And so a really, really big important thing, I think, for us as early stage investors to be thinking about and encouraging our teams to do is to be thinking about building diverse teams early. To be thinking about bringing diversity onto the tech team. To be thinking about bringing diversity onto the senior leadership team. And so, you know, for every candidate that looks a, a little different from the existing candidates before, you start to open the door for more and more people. And so, the more that we can help our companies bring in great diverse candidates, I think in the long term, it starts to pay off in a lot of other ways. I really love what you just said. You said that building a diverse executive team has cumulative benefits. If you do it early, it's much easier to keep doing it. If you don't do it early, you might get stuck. What are some things founders can do to start building a diverse team from the get-go? Yeah, one is to 
to look at your own networks and recognize whether or not you have a diversity problem within your own networks. So first and foremost, it might actually be reaching out to people who are in your network who you just never thought to reach out about this stuff before. I think a lot of times we don't even realize we've got great resources that people just maybe don't look like they fit the normal mold of the three or five people you go to first. So that's number one. Look within your network and understand, are there people that I could be tapping into? Number two, there's plenty of resources out there and organizations out there that are working to bring women and people of color into the industry. And so how can you get involved in one or two of those things in a meaningful way? It could be a, some sort of talent fair, it could be speaking on a panel, it could be hosting an event. And one of the things that a lot of my portfolio companies have done successfully and this works for all candidates, is host these sort of meetup events at the office. You get a chance to show the office off and ask you know, the people on your team to bring a handful of people. And maybe you implement something like the Rooney Rule, which says that, hey, for every... And in this case, you know, these events might be a little different, but you know, if you're going to host a cocktail hour at the office or you're going to host a lunch at the office, you make sure that at least you know, a third of the invites are women or, or underrepresented minorities. And so you kind of set a quota for yourself in terms of how many people need to attend that need to be a little bit outside of what the normal network is. And I think as you become more conscientious of, wow, we're not going out of our way to add people, it becomes a little bit more clear. And at first it may seem like a lot of work, but the reality is if you present a welcoming environment for people, again, you know, if the assumption is my network looks like me and you bring someone in that doesn't look like you, well, their network might look like them. Anything else that founders should, should be aware of as they start to build a team, ways to keep the ball rolling, good hiring practices or interviewing practices that you talk to founders about? Yeah, you know, one thing, um, I had a great conversation with Brad Feld maybe six months ago that he pointed out to me in terms of bringing diversity onto his teams. And I thought it was a really good insight, which is to make sure that you have your diverse employees in the interview process. So, and to make sure that it's not just one, it's multiple. And so, again, you don't want people to feel like they're tokens. And they're only in a process for that reason. And so it is about showing the diversity that you do have on your team to folks as you're bringing them into your pipeline and making sure that you're you're bringing that across in your process. And I think there's a lot of companies that maybe don't think to do that. Just because you've hired a diverse team doesn't mean that the folks coming in on your pipeline know that as well. Okay. I ask everyone the same closing question. Okay. What do you wish your younger self knew going into venture? I'm still learning to be patient. I wish I understood, especially at seed stage, just how patient you have to be. It takes a really long time to see things come to fruition. And it's a, it's a long game. And so I think if I was to give myself some advice six years ago, it would be to slow down just a little bit, worry a little bit less about how fast things come at you, and, and understand that it's a long game. Cool. How can our listeners find you? You can follow me on Twitter at Steph Palmieri. And the best way to reach me is to get an introduction through someone in my network. That's so right. you can always look at our portfolio companies on our website and see if you know any of our founders. And my LinkedIn network is pretty extensive and I try to keep my LinkedIn fairly up to date. So check me out on LinkedIn and see who I know. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. 
Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.